Hey everybody, today's episode of Shoppernomics is brought to you by the Neuromarketing Science and Business Association, the only association for those with a professional interest in neuromarketing. Visit www.nmsba.com for events and membership details. And Decision Breakers, experts in behavior-based shopper strategy, insights, and activation. Email pmcgee at decisionbreakers.com to see how they can help you win your war in-store. Welcome to Shoppernomics, the podcast for marketing and insight professionals who want to stay current on the latest understanding of consumer behavior and decision-making. My name is Phil McGee, and I'm speaking today with Michael Solomon, professor of marketing at the Hobbs School of Business at St. Joseph's University in Philadelphia. He's an industry consultant and author of over 30 books that help managers get inside the heads of their customers to anticipate and satisfy their deepest and most pressing needs. Books like Consumer Behavior, Buying, Having, and Being, and the two books we're going to talk about today, Marketers Tear Down These Walls, Liberating the Postmodern Consumer, and Why Fashion Brands Die and How to Save Them. In his spare time, Michael advises global giants in industries such as apparel, financial services, e-commerce, CPG manufacturing, retailing, industrial manufacturing, and transportation. And if that weren't enough, he's also a regular contributor at Forbes.com, where he writes about retailing, consumer behavior, and branding. And, uh, and I thought my mother had reasons to be proud. Uh, so we'll quickly get into some of the things Michael has to share. But first, Michael, welcome to Shoppernomics. Hey, Phil. Thanks so much for having me on. Oh, it's absolutely our pleasure. And, uh, and Michael, wow. I mean, that is, that is an unbelievable um, bio. And, and that's even pared down from... Um, from what else I could talk about. So, um, but in case I left anything out uh, important that you'd like people to know about you, um, why don't you take a moment and share that? Uh, sure, thanks. Um, I, I appreciate it. And uh, you know, just as a as a quick overview, I, I'm a psychologist by training, and I've had a love of consumer psychology ever since I discovered it in graduate school. When back in the day, back in the last century, I have to say when consumer psychology was just starting to form as a field. And uh, to the shock and horror of my professors, I decided to do my dissertation on the dress for success phenomenon and the impact of clothing on our self-concept. And um, they let me get away with that because I brought funding in to do it from a fashion designer. So somehow they, uh, somehow they, they overcame their objections. And um, yeah, somehow. You know, yeah. And so from that point on, you know, I've been I've been fascinated by the interactions between products and people. And I've I've tried to do a lot of research and, and consulting to to really make companies more customer centric and and really approach the, the whole thing more from the customer's point of view in terms of what buying stuff actually means to us and and the idea that you know everyday stuff is really pretty interesting it seems it seems pretty straightforward when you go shopping and so on but i i'll bet many of your listeners probably realize this that i'm preaching to the converted that you know the act of shopping the act of buying and and certainly the act of consuming what you bought is just full of all kinds of cultural and personal meanings that are that are just amazing to me and, and yes, we can certainly appreciate it, but, but you know, one of the reasons I'm so thrilled to have you on is you know, you're a pioneer in this space. So you know, we think about it because we've been told this is what we should be thinking about. 
Um, and that's because, you know, people such as yourself has said, has said to us for over, over the years, this is how we need to think about things. So, so you've put things in frameworks. You've, you've allowed us to structure our thinking uh, in ways where we can, you know, be good marketers. So, um, so, so thanks for all the work you've done. And, and I've seen you speak at the Shopper Brain Conferences in New York and Amsterdam. It's, it's just a thrill to have you here uh, to share your thoughts with our audience. So, so thanks for taking the time to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and there's a lot I want to cover today, but, but at the same time, I've intentionally limited my questions because I want to give you as much time as you can spare to talk about your books and, and share your wisdom with us. So, so to begin, I'm, I'm curious, again, I mentioned that you've authored over 30 books. Um, you know, what was your motivation for doing that, uh, for writing 30 books and, and these latest two in particular? I mean, it sounds like a tremendous amount of work. What's in it for you? Uh, masochism, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, writing books, you know, when, you, when you're an academic, of course, you've heard the expression publish or perish. Mm-hmm. I, like, I like to say it's publish and perish usually. But, <laughs> um, you know, I, a lot of the books un, until recently that I've written are textbooks. And uh, the one you mentioned, Consumer Behavior, Buying, Having and Being, I'm happy to say it's the most widely used uh, globally for um, for marketing students, both undergrad and, and graduate. And wow. that was a real challenge to write that because I wrote it at a time when the field was just starting to change and to move away from a very mechanistic view of consumers into something a lot richer. And I'd like to think this book had something to do with it, but it certainly reflected those changes I started that in the 1980s, and I'm uh, I'm now on the 13th edition. Um, so it gets a little easier as you go, and so uh, as you know, you know when you when you write something or do anything, there's a learning curve, and the first part of that curve is usually the steepest. So it seems kind of silly once you've mastered the first part to give up on it, and. Um, you know, I have to say with writing textbooks, it's a real interesting creative challenge, as you can imagine, to take a complex concept like the ones that you wrestle with in your work every day and put that into a paragraph or two that makes sense to an 18-year-old. Yeah. So I figure if I can do that, maybe I can even talk to managers as well. And so that's why in more recent years, in addition to the textbooks, uh, I've I've taken more of a serious stab at and writing a couple of trade books that I that I hope can can uh, share this perspective on what what we call the deep meanings of products and and why that's so important to people like yourself and and your audience that that study shopping and buying. So it, you know, it's interesting. You you started your answer by talking about the the nature of publish or perish, um, and I guess I've always thought about that as you know, the volume or number of papers or books that you publish. Um, but the fact that your book is, um, as you mentioned, the most widely used book on the subject in the world, um, does it also count or, or, or give you credit if, it's, uh, if the size of the audience for what you publish is as big as it is? Or does that not matter? Do you not get credit for that? Well, by if by credit you mean in academic circles, the yes. answer the answer is probably not. <laughs> wow, that's uh, uh, you know I've been fortunate enough to be to be pretty active as a researcher. Uh, you know I doubt uh, I doubt that I frankly that I would have gotten tenure at all 
uh, which is the best deal in the world, by the way. Uh, sure. <laughs> but I doubt I would have got, gotten that if I had just written textbooks because most of my colleagues don't seem to regard those as academic accomplishments. So I, I've had to keep my hand in otherwise as well and <laughs> you know, manage to do that. But I, I have to say that writing the books is, is a tremendous amount of fun. And it's, and it's very gratifying to know that, you know, I, the problem is when you write a an academic article, it's going to be read. If, if you're lucky, it'll be read by a few hundred people, sure. uh, whereas a book like this will be read by uh, many, many thousands. So, uh, you know, there's a unique challenges and opportunities in both. And I'm, I'm glad to have done both in my career for sure. Yeah, no, that's great. I mean, it, and, and I know it can be very fulfilling to have done those things. Um, it's it's just having, having to go through the process um, that that can make that can make that part of it painful, but certainly having done it, um, you know, now, now you're enjoying the pleasure of, of being there. Um, now, you know, in, in listening to you speak, um, and reading, um, in articles about you, uh, you have a mantra that you use commonly, which is, uh, we don't buy products because of what they do. We buy them because of what they mean. Um, Talk about that a little bit, if you wouldn't mind. Just, you know, elaborate on what you mean by that. Well, what I mean is, you know, I, I, for a lot of people, I think a lot of your listeners are aware of the distinction that we need to make between attributes and benefits. Yeah. You know, the attributes of a product versus the benefits. And, and quite honestly, I'm often surprised at how many practitioners seem to forget that because when they, when they get into the trenches, they they focus a lot more on the attributes and they seem to forget that people are not buying their products because they have wonderful attributes. They're buying them because of what the takeaways are for them. And it, you know, it's worth reminding yourself of that. Even if you're a grizzled veteran, you know, to remind yourself, you know, for example, I, I like to say that sleep is actually the consumption of sheets. You know, it, uh, in other words, just about any product, out there and certainly any consumer facing product is is really laden with meanings and it's usually not the functionality that that wins the day and you know when you when you look at virtually any category and, and I'm I'm betting you've seen this in a lot of your work as well it's it, I know it drives managers crazy because you if you're a brand manager you think your brand is just you know the best thing since sliced bread and it's oh, of course. head and shoulders above all the others and yet when you when you put four or five competing options in front of consumers a common response is yeah yeah they're all pretty good right and and of course we know that that's not necessarily true but but having said that, when you look in a lot of categories, the exception is that there's often one, maybe two at the most brands that are head and shoulders above the rest. And they have this fanatical following. Mm. And, uh, you know, you can look at all the familiar examples like Nike and Apple and so on. And, right. and the reality is, sure, there may be some functional differences between phone A and phone B, but we all know that that's not why people are Apple fanatics. You know, they, there's a lot more wound up in it. It's the design, it's the cult of Apple and so on. And, and again, in, in so many categories, this is the case. And, you know, it's, I mean, it's been proven in, in research that it's very, it's the typical situation in a vertical is that the first or second brand have dominant market share and the others are really, you know, well behind 
uh, kind of like presidential candidates, I guess, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> right. um, and and you ask yourself why, and the answer is not that you know that that the the leader is that much better in terms of functionality. What it's better at. I believe is that it's a better storyteller mm. and it's created a narrative that people want to buy into. And, and that's what I mean. You know, when we, we buy things because of what they mean. And so not what they mean to the brand manager, what they mean to the customers. And that is a very, when you put on, when you put on a, a hat, a consumer hat and look at your brand from the point of view of your customers, it's amazing how the lens changes and you realize that some of the things you thought were super important because that's what the industry says, you know, these things are important. Uh -huh. From the consumer's perspective, they're like, yeah, that, I need, I'd like to have that. You know, but this one makes me feel really sophisticated or athletic or what, whatever the, the thing may be. And so it's important to even, – even though it's a basic truth, you know, at, don't, you don't sell the steak. You sell the sizzle. Right. It's so fundamental that I think – it's easy to lose sight of that. And it's almost tempting to put a little sticky tab on your computer screen that says, hey, remember, you know, you're not selling the steak, you're selling the sizzle. Yes, yes. Really good point. And, and I, I, I think you would argue that that is true even for the most um, apparent, rationally minded consumer, right? You know, the person who says, well, I buy on price. Or, you know, I don't care about brand. I, I just care, you know, what it tastes like or what it feels like or how it performs. Um, I, I think you would argue that underlying those kind of rational remarks that they might make when asked, there is still sizzle that they are seeking. It may not be the same sizzle as the fanatics, but it's still sizzle nonetheless. Is that true? I, I think it is. And, you know, I think it's even even true in B2B context and the most mm. kind of mundane, you know, industrial buying. You you often see that people will will make a choice based on some quote unquote irrational criterion. And that might be, for example, loyalty to a sales rep. You know, yeah. um, uh, it can be a, a variety of things. Maybe they just like the color or maybe there's there's something about that their exhibit at the trade show. You know, if if that wasn't the case, why would you go to the lengths you do to have these elaborate promotions and, and so on. So I, I think that, that I think it's, it's hard to find a category where there isn't some, and I say it in quotes, irrationality yeah. uh, where you're not just buying based on the specs. And, and of course, you know, as, as we all know, you could, you could hold a gun to these consumers heads and say, no, really, I want, I want to know your true motivation for buying this. They don't know. Um, they honestly believe that it's for the rational reasons they are making their decisions, but these quote unquote irrational reasons um, are are not always something they are aware of themselves. And that's you know that's a delicious challenge that a lot of <laughs> listeners, your yeah. listeners, face because you know it's that's what Shopper Insights are about. Any, anybody can tell you they like they like green versus red, but right. but getting down into the true reasons, they're they're even they're either unknown or they may be reluctant to tell you for some reason it might not be socially desirable, et cetera. Right. Of course. And, and, you know, coming from your background, you, you know, there are techniques to uh, unveil those kind of hidden motivations. Um, 
but but they're not you know they're not focus groups. <laughs> no, they're not they're not focus groups, and and it's kind of fun you know as you as you've been in this for a while, and you know I've got the gray hairs to prove it, but uh, you start to see there's nothing new under the sun, and it's been kind of fun to watch, and you know some of the ad agencies that I'm familiar with. You know, some of the techniques from the 1950s, you know, motivational research, Ernest Drucker, and you know, uh, uh, I mean, Ernest Dichter, excuse me, and all that uh, depth interviewing and archetypes and all that. You, you, you start to see that again. You know, we, we were really in, we went through a very, quote, rational period in the 60s and 70s when computers began to get more and more sophisticated. And we could feed any data we wanted, you know, do large scale surveys and so on. Yeah. Uh, but of course, garbage in, garbage out, and it's been kind of fun to watch that come full circle. Not that people aren't doing surveys anymore, but I think they're also realizing that two or three focus groups isn't going to do much for you. <laughs> right, right, right. Exactly. Um, all right. So let's talk a little bit about your book, "Marketers Tear Down These Walls." Um, the subtitle to that is "Liberating the Postmodern Consumer." Uh, what do you mean by that? And and how is the notion of a postmodern consumer relevant to Shopper Insights? Yeah, so postmodernism, you know, it's a term that you see, you see in literature, you see it in architecture, you see it in art, but it really applies to consumer behavior as well. And what I'm referring to is when we look at modernism, what that means is a drive to put things into very well-defined categories, and really, the scientific method is is related to that as well. You know, very clear, measurable categories, and everything has to fit into a category. Hmm. Uh, are the, the really the basics of of market segmentation that we've practiced for years and years are are based on this idea that you can put every consumer into a segment. Right. Uh, the problem is that consumers don't want to be in segments anymore. Hmm. And postmodernism means essentially a blurring of boundaries. So to me, the, you know, the, the best analogy is uh, you go to one of these international buffets. I'm sure everybody's been to those, you know, and, and you walk down the aisle there and, you know, you're, you're putting stuff on your plate, you know, a, a pizza next to, next to egg foo young, uh, next to tacos, you know. And, and that essentially is a postmodern approach to dining as opposed to going to an Italian restaurant where everything is going to be you know, from a certain cuisine. Uh, in, in the same way, when we look at how consumers are living their lives, they're, they're no longer hemmed into these categories. And um, a lot of the basic distinctions that we use to define consumers, and we can talk more about what some of those are, but, you know, for example, some basic ones like male versus female right. or rich versus poor or black versus white, the, these are categories that are remnants of an earlier era, and they, they, they no longer apply, and they're, they're frankly counterproductive. So it's really important to, to insights people to understand that you can put people into categories, but they're not going to stay there. And when you track them over time, what you realize is that they're more like a diner at that buffet. They're sampling from different lifestyles. Mm. So when we talk about lifestyle segmentation, you know, we give somebody a label and many people have done this where, you, you know, you give people some fancy label and you think you understand them. But they're, maybe they're adhering to that label for example, when they're at work, but then they get home on, on a Saturday, on a Friday night or Saturday, and they're experimenting with lots of different lifestyles. They're, they're buying clothing or they're eating food or they're traveling to places that don't conform 
to the categories we put them in. So really the thesis of the book is that we need to step back and question the, the most fundamental basic dichotomies that we all use to talk about consumers. And that really affects the way we segment, if we segment, and it affects how we talk to people uh, more, more on a one-to-one basis with a recognition that just because they've done something that conforms to one category today doesn't mean we're going to find them there tomorrow. Interesting. So, um, so it sounds like you're saying people aren't members of a group. They are members of different groups um, depending on you know, the context or the time of day uh, or maybe who they're interacting with. I guess that's part of context. And that it, so they're, they're more like a or less like a quilt and more like a patch quilt. Um, and that these things will, you know, change over time as their situations and context change. Is, is that, is that a good interpretation of what you said or yeah. not so much? Uh, sure. It, it, it definitely captures a big part of it. And, you know, it, it's a good reminder. We talk a lot in consumer psychology about identity, the importance of social identity. Yeah. Who am I right now? And that's a, there's a long sociological tradition of that. Like that yeah. And and based on your answer to that question, that dictates the what, the purchase of what I call a constellation of products that go along with that answer. So, you know, so for ex- one of the ones I've written about a lot, uh, show you how old I am, is the yuppie, the, the yuppie stereotype. And when you think about a yuppie, that label for your listeners who are old enough to remember yuppies uh, instantly conjures up consumption in a lot of different categories like white wine and brie and playing racquetball and a Rolex watch and and on and on and you can and there are many labels like that but but the point is that our our identities change a lot over time and we know there's tons of research to show us that cues in the environment can bring up different parts of ourselves uh, and those cues can be very, very subtle. You know, there's one study that was done a couple of years ago that I like uh, where they had people in a problem solving environment. Maybe you've heard of this one. And there was a very subtle on the wall. There was a, a small uh, logo in one condition of had the IBM logo and another condition had the Apple logo. Right. And uh, and what do they find? Well, people randomly put into the Apple condition, come up with solutions on average that are more creative, but had no idea that they were influenced by the Apple logo. Right. And there are, you know, tons of studies like that, that, sh- that, and those are very, that's of course a very subtle cue. Now, when you have even stronger cues, like let's say, uh, you know, ethnic symbolism or something like that, that reminds someone of their heritage, you know, maybe it's, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, Hispanic American uh, environment, and it reminds people that they have uh, roots in that subculture, mm-hmm. and then they're more. That's going to prime them to buy more stuff that's related to that subculture. So, so we're shifting identities all the time. You know, when we leave, when we go to work, when we're when we're thinking, when uh, you know, you you could be fifty years old if you if you still have parents alive, you go home to, to visit them. You they treat you like a kid, you know, and you feel like a kid. Right. <laughs> you right, feel right. like you're you know you're a teenager being monitored, and and we all experience these things. So these environmental impacts are extremely powerful, and a lot of marketers have have not really thought about that very much. You know, one one example I think of a company that's done some good work with this is um, is Kraft. You know, where they 
I, I think a few years ago, they, they revised a lot of their segmentation strategy to focus more on snacking occasions and, and building whole groups. And if, uh, maybe they've changed since then. I don't know. But I know at one point they were building whole groups around, for example, tailgating or something like that, where a certain identity is going to be called forth. But of course, what people eat at a tailgate is different than what they're going to eat at a business lunch. Okay, got it. So, um, <laughs> you know, the, the obvious follow-up question is, so Michael, what are the implications of that? And, and, but you said this is the premise of your book, so it takes a book to talk about the implications of that. But um, can I sum it up at a very, very high level by saying, don't market to who you believe people are, but to who they can be given a context that you create for them? Yeah, I, I like that. I wish I wish uh, you I wish I had written that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, there's and, and again, there's a lot of implications at other in other parts of the marketing process as well. For example, new product development, because when people tend to work in a category, they benchmark everything they're doing to that category. And usually and, and what I find is that often the most innovative and interesting new products are those that are on the cusp between two categories or a hybrid of two categories. Give you, give you an example from the, from the fashion area. Uh, uh, you have athletic wear, that's a stable category, hasn't done much in recent years. You have leisure wear, another stable category. And then you have a few people like the folks at Lululemon and so on who decide to mix the two and create a new category called athleisure, which as everybody knows, has just exploded yeah. in recent years. And you can see that in a lot of categories like uh, car design, for example, when you, when you have an SUV, which is hugely popular, but you know, hasn't really been around that long and is really a hybrid of a, of a sedan and a minivan. Yeah. Interesting. I want to switch subjects a little bit um, because you talk about what you call the hive mind. Yeah, in reference to how many people, especially millennials and, and those in Generation Z, um, and how they decide what to buy. What do you mean by the hive mind and what changes do you see in terms of how shoppers today decide what to buy? Well, the hive mind, you know, when I came up with that term, again, I'm dating myself. I'm thinking of, for those of your listeners who are Star Trek fans <laughs> and you remember the Borg Oh, yes. uh, you know, where they absorb everybody into the hive and all that. Uh, what 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 I find and I certainly see this with my students, you know, all the time is that th they're they're not going through the discrete stages of the decision making process that we have talked about for more than 50 years. Mm. You know, there's a very well-known linear decision making process where we we recognize that we have a problem that we have to solve. We search for information to solve it, we evaluate the options we came up with, we make a choice, and then we evaluate the, the goodness of that choice. That's the classic decision-making model. Right. And, and that implies, uh, first of all, that it's done in a linear way. Right. And second of all, that for the most part, for the most part, we're not getting a lot of input from other people until after we make the decision. Mm. And at, and at that point, we say, hey, guys, what do you think? I just bought this, you know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what we're seeing today, I think, is much more of a 24-7 circular process mm. where 
people aren't necessarily buying stuff all the time, but they're they're constantly on the hunt because they're constantly getting notifications and you know for uh, updates from their friends and and Pinterest updates and 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 on and on, and and so what that means is the um, the decision point has changed. And, and Google Google talks about this a lot. They talk about the so-called ZMOT, the zero moment of truth. Right. And 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 ironically, you know what what we find is that because of the internet and all that stuff that goes with it, ironically, even though we we have access to so much more information, what it does is it it makes our search for information incredibly more complicated and ongoing. Partly because we just have way too much information, but that's another story. <laughs> right. Uh, and, and what that means is that people are working a lot harder to make even basic decisions. And so, for example, in the hive mind, you know, there's constant back and forth uh, feedback or, you know, what do you guys think? I'm thinking about buying this. What do you guys think? And so it's kind of like it, it really in some ways resembles more of an industrial buying situation, a, a buying by committee or a buying center mm. where more people are involved in that decision. So even, you know, when, when people are ordering something in a restaurant tour or they're going to a clothing store, it's like they have to get sign off from uh, their, their <laughs> entire network before they do that. And, and for older people, it's kind of, you know, we, we laugh about it, but, when you talk to young people, they'll say, yeah, that's that's pretty much what I do. I mean, I don't do it for everything, but for many things and not and not just really, you know, not just the really high involvement stuff like buying a house or something. It's it's the everyday stuff. So the there's as opposed to there being this sequential process that we can identify and also we can intervene at various stages by knowing it's important, of course, to know what stage in the buying process or the sales funnel your your prospect is. Today, it's, it's always on. And that has a lot of implications, for example, for retailers, because a lot of retailers still have this notion that when someone walks into their, their bricks and mortar store, they haven't figured out what they want yet. And so that's their opportunity to, to intervene. And mm -hmm. the reality is a lot of people, when they, by the time they get into that bricks and mortar store, they know exactly what they want. And they're just looking for the best place to get it. And so... The retailer has relatively little input compared to the old days when salespeople could sway you because people have done a ton of research before they ever walked into that store, if they ever do bother to walk into that store. Right, right. But that's not to say, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but um, that's not to say that context still doesn't matter, that retailers can't create a context that disrupts that predetermined decision. Oh, absolutely. You know, and that's consistent with what we were just saying about the environment. It, yep. it doesn't mean retailers have no power, but number one, they have to You use the word disruptive. It can't just be, you know, laying the stuff out there and, and thinking that people are going to be swayed by a, a cool display or something. Right. And they have to recognize that it's in their interest to get involved earlier in the process. So retailers need to be communicating with customers much earlier on so that they're included in the initial stages of search. And, you know, I think it's diagnostic. And this is a great trivia question. I ask my, I tell my students this all the time. We, we all know that Google is the number one search engine in the world. What's number two? And people say, oh, it's Bing or something. Well, it's not. Of course, it's YouTube. YouTube is the second biggest search engine. Mm. And what that means is that 
that to a very large degree and increasingly so people are searching on video for videos that will tell them what to buy. Right. Right. And if right, you're right. not a part of that process, you're already, you're dead in the water to a large extent. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's really interesting. You know, so this, the retail environment used to be the place in which decisions were considered and, and made. Um, now the consideration and decision-making is made beforehand. And so a retailer, has a different job to do in store, essentially. Um, you know, I mean, there's still some degree of helping people consider and decide, right? Especially people new to a category um, or, or, or novices within a category. And, uh, but for people who go in with those decisions pre-made, then, uh, then they have a different job to do. Now it's, it's maybe, you know, nudge those decisions in different directions, either to improve satisfaction um, or to improve profits, uh, or you know whatever the motivation may be. Yeah, and it you know and it can it could be as straightforward as as knowing in advance what people are likely to be coming in to look for, and preemptively showing them alternatives that make better sense for them. Right. Right. Exactly. So, um, you know, in addition to being an author, you're an observer, right? So you you have the opportunity to see marketers um, in action every day. And I'm sure you see lots of mistakes being made by marketers, um, you know, especially when targeting these next generation of buyers, the millennials and Gen Zs in particular. Uh, what are some of the mistakes that you, you see? I, I, I'd, I'd be interested in knowing, you know, kind of from, from your perspective of the marketing world, um, you know, what we're doing wrong that uh, maybe we shouldn't be. Well, part of my perspective is formed by by standing in front of 20-year-olds several times a week, which is a, a daunting thing because, mm. as I like to say, every year I'm one year older and they're not. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but it's always great to learn from them and to, just to hear what hear them talking about what turns them on and what turns them off. And, you know, everybody's scratching their heads about, oh, what are we going to do about Gen Z? Nobody understands them and, and so on. And you know, one, one conclusion some people come to is, oh, they don't want, they're not interested in marketing. They don't want to be marketed to. And that's only partly true. They don't want to be overtly marketed to, but they love brands. And the brands, again, are a part of their identity. And they, they understand that. They understand that they have a lot more, uh, they have a lot more choice than maybe their older brothers and sisters did because they're not willing to be pigeonholed into these segments that I was talking about. They're, they're more actively using brands as kind of a palette, if you will, to paint a picture of themselves. And again, that picture, of course, keep, keeps changing. Right. And so it's not that they don't want to be, they don't want to be marketed to, but they want to be marketed with, hmm. and they want, they want to be involved. And when you, you know, changing that little word from to to with is, is incredibly important because um, they, they, the more involved they can be, the better, uh, they, they are, they are creators of content. You know, we talk a lot about user generated content, but it's not just a phrase. I mean, it is the way, the way successful marketing is done today. And so, uh, you know, they're, they, they have a short attention span. Um, you have to be aware of that. Of course, they're not going to listen to long drawn out stuff. You got to use ju just a few words. You got to rely primarily on, on visuals, uh, even when they're absorbing textbook information, but that's another story. Yeah. Um, and, and they're, you know, as I think a lot of people realize in very socially conscientious 
which is really encouraging. And they they are very, very attuned to companies that that are engaged in, let's say, greenwashing, for example, where where they talk the talk, but they don't walk the walk because now everybody's jumping all over themselves trying to show how, you know, how socially responsible they are. But they have a BS detector that's very, very sensitive. <laughs> and so, you know, I, I think that the number one thing you can do if you're not doing it already is to focus on CSR, you know, corporate social responsibility, but make sure that you're following through because otherwise it's going to come back to bite you. So mm-hmm. I, I would say this, the, if I had to pick one word that is the most important to keep in mind, it's authenticity. Yeah. Uh, they want to know where brands came from. They want to know how they're made. They want to know that what they're being told is authentic and they want an authentic voice or input into the creation and usage of those brands. And, and if I can add a second word, um, which we don't like to do because um, <laughs> we, we, we want to keep things to one word if we can, uh, would be relevance, um, it seems, because mm-hmm. as, as part of the uh, marketing to uh, versus marketing with, you know, when I'm watching network television, I feel like I'm being marketed to, right? These are these products often I've never heard before. Um, I have, they're not relevant to me. I've got no interest in, and, you know, I, I wish I DVR'd the show so I can just get past it. Um, whereas when, you know, if, if I'm on Facebook, it seems like every ad there is highly relevant, relevant to me. And, um, and, and I feel as if the marketing there is actually performing a service. And, and I've talked to my kids about this, you know, asking, you know, whether they find all of the pop-up ads and things on social media to be annoying. And they said, well, only when it's not something I'm interested in. Um, and and they, so they kind of see it the same way. Whereas, you know, if it's helpful, if it's relevant, if it's, if it's meaningful to me and my interests, then yeah, go for it. Because um, that's, that's actually helpful for me. Um, so, um, and, you know, and then, and of course being authentic is, 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 you know, the ultimate tiebreaker between things that are relevant to me. Um, I'm going to go with the thing which, which has that meaning, you know, back to what we talked about earlier, um, versus it just kind of fits with my, my particular needs, you know, and so you talked a little bit about social media and, and, you know, certainly companies today couldn't survive without it um, or those platforms to create their ads, to encourage consumer interactions and, and promote their brands. Um, you know, what else could they be doing? Yeah, well, I mean, of course, social media is the lifeblood of, of everything now. Um, you know, we, you can't really have a campaign without it. But, but having said that, you know, and, and, and your comments are music to my ears because it, it feeds directly into what I was saying earlier that your kids – when they talk about relevance, what they're saying is, I don't want to be grouped in some homogeneous market segment just because I'm whatever, you know, a college student or I live in an urban area or whatever. I have, right. I'm, an, I'm an individual and marketers need to figure me out. And, of course, they can, they can do that. There's some ethical issues, right, about tracking them and so on. But, sure. uh, but that, that, of course, is the upside of that entire issue is that they are being fed – information that that is relevant because it's based on what they've already already looked at yeah so the social media platforms of course have have to do that but i but again i think you know to to me the the real potential for these platforms is 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 the proactivity 
And when you ask how marketers can use them better, well, there's the promotional side of it, but also the insights side of it, which mm. I think is relevant to your to your listeners. Because, uh, you know, for example, uh, when you look at a platform like Pinterest, or when you look at Instagram, which is where you know all the kids are today. You know, and as they tell me, oh, nobody's on Facebook anymore. Right, that's, right. That's kind of scary. Um, what's going on is I, I, I'm amazed at the amount of data that managers are leaving on the table. Because what you have here is you, you have thousands or millions of consumers who are doing your marketing research for you because they are proactively putting together the visual lifestyle that makes sense to them. So when you talk about relevance, if you want to be relevant to somebody, take a look at their Instagram posts or take a look at their Pinterest boards. You can't get a lot more relevant than that. And that's that's the raw data you should be using to come back to them and say, yeah, we have that stuff or we have something that's very similar to it. Yeah, that's a, a great example of how we can be using available data for um, and you're right. There are there are privacy issues, but when it's not creepy and and it and it comes across as a as a legitimate service, um, then you know, and it looks like help. Then sure, I think consumers are going to be uh, less contrarian to to that whole idea. You know, we talked a little bit about your book's subtitle, but we haven't really talked about the title. You know, marketers tear down these walls. I love that. Um, and and you talk a lot about how these traditional walls. Um, need to be taken down. Talk about some of the walls that um, that those of us who study Shopper Insights should know about. Yeah, sure. And I, I talk about quite a few of them in, in the book, but, uh, but a, a few that I think are very interesting, um, especially for your audience. Uh, one, one is the distinction between humans and robots. <laughs> and... Um, you know, that you heard me talk about at the Shopper Brain Conference briefly. And, and this, this notion that, that today there's really, we're increasingly seeing a blurring of the boundaries there where robots are becoming more like humans and humans are becoming more like robots in the sense that we're, we're focusing on algorithms. You know, we're measuring our performance with, uh, with Fitbits and things like that. We're, at, we're benchmarking our performance but in, in terms of, of shopper insights, you know, the, the, I think it's fascinating to ask, you know, what's the future of the salesperson? We, we know robots are taking, you know, if you're a truck driver today, you're probably pretty worried because robots are taking your job. Right. But they're also going to be taking marketers' jobs. Uh, you know, advertising buys and things like that are being automated. But, sale, you know, the whole sales function is going to be automated. And so... To me, one of the fascinating things to think about is, it, you know, if you are, in fact, involving shopper assistants of various kinds, whether in store, uh, you know, like, say, at Lowe's, where they're, do, where they're doing that, or, or bots and so on online or call centers, um, how do you configure that, that person, in quotes, so that they have the, the most positive impact on the customer? And there's many things we can learn from 50 or 60 years of research on, on what makes flesh and blood salespeople more or less effective or, or communicators in general. Uh, so far, I'm not seeing a lot of that applied, but I think it's going to have to be because in some cases, consumers are going to welcome these opportunities rather than speaking to some 
you know, a teenage salesperson who has no idea what's in the store. We've all had that experience. <laughs> yeah. uh, but on the other hand, you know, talking to someone who's got some empathy for their issues. So, so that's one. The, uh, another one that I mentioned briefly before is, is male versus female. And, um, you know, of course, today there's a tremendous amount of dialogue and controversy about what it means to be male or female or something in between. And we know we have several states where already on your driver's license, you don't have to indicate whether you're male or female. I think the Census Bureau is going to do something similar. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have all of these uh, things going on in, in the fashion industry with uh, with uh, trans fashions and androgynous fashions. And so a lot of people, of course, traditionalists are very threatened by this. Um, it, it, it represents a lot of change from a merchandising perspective. You know, it opens up doors because, you know, for, for example, when, you know, when you look at, let's say, uh, personal care products, where's the growth happening now? It's on the male side. You know, it's, I mean, women are buying, it, you know, still buying a lot more uh, overall. But when you look at the growth rates, particularly in Europe, but here in the U.S. as well, it's it's men who represent the opportunities. And, you know, you have uh, you have stores. I haven't seen it much in, in the U.S., but uh, but in the U.K., for example, you know, there I, there are several stores that sell only cosmetics for men like mascara and things like that. Wow. And we, we say, who's going to wear that? But right. But actually, a high percentage of, of British men, as far as I've seen or read about, are doing that. And, you know, as, as we all know, anybody in marketing knows that something that seems outrageous today could be the norm tomorrow. So there's another example of a boundary of a basic dichotomy we use that in some ways we totally have to throw out, out the window, you know. And, uh, and more generally... Uh, I mean, we have some demographic ones that that are obsolete. I think I think a lot of the the racial and ethnic uh, dichotomies we use are obsolete due to high rates of intermarriage and and so on. Um, the body versus possessions in general, and again, the, you know, when we talk about wearables, what does it mean to be to to be a wearable today? And as people are increasingly going to buy. Uh, contact lenses that secrete medicines, or they're going to they're going to insert chips into their bodies that enable them to do certain things. We're we're already seeing this, and we we just don't have an answer for it from a a marketing perspective. You know, e- even at the basic level, I've written a lot about wearables. You know, when you when you look at at something like a a Fitbit or some you know a product like that, yeah. Um, if you're a merchandiser, is that a watch or is that jewelry? You know, is that a, is that an ex, is that a piece of exercise equipment or do you put it in the fine jewelry section? Mm. And the answer is, well, it could go in both. You right, know? Right, so, right. so even even at that very basic perspective, when we think about how we lay out stores, we do it in a modernist way as well. You know, we have the the menswear department, which is, you know, we have the underwear over here and the suits over there, and blah, blah, blah. But when you have people who are looking at streetwear and so on, and and they're merging these categories, you're probably doing yourself a disservice by laying out a store that that doesn't represent the way people are cognitively representing these categories. Yeah, that's a really good point. The traditional way of 
of doing taxonomy is by product attributes and features and usage structures, occasion-based segmentation, things like that, versus a taskonomy. You know, it's kind of the way in which these things are used or can be suggested to be used can create not just ways of presenting yourself at retail as alternatives, but also could be additional ways of presenting yourself. And, and your kind of Fitbit example is a good one where it's like, well, have it with the watches and then also have it with the, you know, the exercise equipment. Yeah. And if, you know, if you think about other categories like CPG, if you think about grocery layouts, you know, um, uh, wh why is it that if I go to, you know, if I go to buy mustard, the hot dogs are in another part of the store when, I, you know, in a Bayesian or, you know, in a probability sense, I know that if someone is buying mustard, they're more likely to buy the hot dogs, right? Yeah. So again, organizing by occasion is a different way to think about it. Uh, or, you know, and nobody's going to totally revamp a grocery store. I recognize that. But right. there are certain occasions where, let's say, tailgating, you know, we're coming up on Super Bowl. Um, you know, why not devote a part to of the store to just everything we know across categories that goes into that occasion. Yes, and and thank you for pointing out the risk of just completely disrupting everything. Um, you know, I can't tell you how many projects I've worked on where you talk about how to improve a category shoppability, and you know, more than half the people say, "Oh gosh, just don't just don't change a thing," right? Because I figured this out. And I don't want to have to figure it out again. So it could be completely broken. And I don't care because as, as long as it's not different than how it is today, I'm fine with it. You're right. The, wall, the walls need to be broken down. It's the way in which you get to the other side of the broken down wall um, needs to be handled with care. Oh, yeah. It's, uh, you know, it's not as easy as it sounds. I'm not and I'm not pretending that. And people have, you know, we, we've trained shoppers to think in certain ways. Yeah. But but if we've trained them, we can also untrain them. Yeah. Well, your book is, is wonderful. I mean, the message is really, really important. The time to act is uh, is 10 years ago. Right. Um, this stuff is happening fast. And, and, you know, if you're not already thinking about these things, uh, you're already too late. Um, so so, you know, a must read absolutely for any marketer. I want to talk about your second book, the one that was just published, I think just a couple of weeks ago, right? The one you titled How Fashion Brands Die and How to Save Them. Uh, you referenced fashion a couple of times. Tell us about what, you know, what this book is all about and, and, and some of your key messages here. Yeah, well, th thanks. We, I just uh, published this book with, uh, with Brandon Rowe, who is a, in the fashion business. Uh, he's based, based in Europe. Uh, he has actually a podcast as well called The Fashion Consumer, and the two of us got together, and one of the things we've done is to basically, is actually to take some of the ideas, we started by taking some of the ideas that are in the in the first book, and asking how do they apply, apply specifically to the fashion industry, which is in tremendous upheaval right now. Hmm. And so the book is loosely based on the first, but we wound up, of course, adding much more than we had planned on <laughs> so it's it's actually quite a different book now but uh but basically we're we're talking about uh the the need again to be to be consumer centric and when you talk about what people are looking for in in fashion to be aware of some of these major disruptive trends and and certainly from a design perspective you know like i was talking about male versus female for, for example i mean that's particularly relevant for fa for fashion designers today 
Um, but but many of the uh, many of the others as well, uh, you know, for example, uh, depicting older people in fashion advertising versus younger and and things like that. So what we do is make our way through the book and 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 tackle some of the issues that that people in that industry uh, basically that keep them up at night, um, what customers are looking for. And of course, sustainability is a huge one. Is fast fashion dead and so on? We tackle some of those things. So it, it really is a vehicle that, that lets us take some of these basic ideas about reexamining old, outdated assumptions mm-hmm. and show uh, managers and designers specifically who, who sell fashion-related products that they need to step back and, and have a, a better understanding of, of just who's buying this stuff. Are things changing faster than they have previously? Or, you know, fashion, I think by definition means always a step ahead, right? And, and is maintaining that step ahead um, more difficult to do today or just it's kind of a different challenge today given some of the things you talked about before? Well, it's incredibly difficult. You know, I like to say the, o- the only constant in fashion is change. The only thing we can count on is that we can't count on anything because <laughs> – it does change so quickly. And again, we can blame the good old internet for that. I, you know, I, I think it's probably here to stay now and it, it's having a pretty big impact, uh, you know, simply because the diffusion cycle is so much faster yeah. where today we have say, you know, what, what do people wear at the Grammys? You know, when can we expect to see knockoffs of that, uh, you know, in Macy's? Well, Nowadays, we can expect to see it 24 hours before the actresses wear them on the runway. Right. You know, and 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 that's just the tip of the iceberg. So things are changing extremely rapidly. And yet I you know, the, the, the paradox there, I think, is that one of the solutions that I'm starting to see bubble up is kind of like if you're familiar with the slow food movement, kind of an antidote to fast food. Right. Um, the slow fashion movement is something that is starting to bubble mm. up. And what do I mean by that? Well, fast fashion is, you know, the, the, the apparel industry is the second largest polluter on the planet uh, wow. after, the, after the energy sector. Wow. And, and a lot of people don't realize that. And a lot of it has to do with the contaminants that go into wastewater and so on. Yeah. Um, and of course, fast fashion, which has been the, the success story, you know, the, the H and M's and Zara's of the world, um, rely on a much faster stock turn where where a lot of the items are are quite inexpensive and so and, and of course I, I think because people increasingly are looking for an instagrammable moment so social <laughs> right. media you know they constantly have to have new styles right on their bodies and uh, and what that means is that it encourages people to buy more and more and then to get rid of it faster and faster either because it's out of style quicker or because it's made in such a shoddy way that it just disintegrates. And so what you're seeing is at least I'm seeing a lot more conversation now about investment fashion, you might say, yeah, where people are saying, don't buy as much, but spend more on what you do buy. You know, buy stuff that's going to last, then you don't have to recycle it, and mm. it's better for the environment, and maybe you'll even spend less money in the long run because you're not replacing it. Now, if you're a traditional fashion industry person, you're, you're, you know, you're not happy to, you're not happy to hear that. But what it means is that ironically, it, you know, it may be a correction 
you know, we're kind of in a race to the bottom right now. Who can who can turn out the, the flimsiest stuff that is in fashion today because it's not worth making it good because by next week some influencer is going to have something else on. Right. Yeah. Boy, you know, if, if you ever want to work in a challenging industry, become a buyer or fashion designer because you don't have Nielsen or IRI creating these wonderful trend lines for you telling you, well, this attribute's more important um, you know, then that one, therefore just amp up that attribute and, and decrease that other attribute. There are no good data sources to help you understand what next year's fashion trend is going to be. And so you're always kind of flying by the seat of your pants and, and you just have to create the trend versus follow it. Yeah. Well, you create the, you create the trend, but where I push back from that is that you have to recognize, getting back to what we were talking about earlier, about proactivity yeah. and co-creation, this is where co-creation happens the most. Oh, and so okay. you have to recognize that you don't create the trend. You help to propel the trend, but it's your customers who create the trend. And when you look at a lot of the, a lot of the fashions, if, if you talk to designers and say, where do you get your inspirations from? You know, they'll probably tell you, well, you know, I walk around the streets in the East Village and I see what kids are wearing. And, and then I translate that into something for the market. And, and so the, way, the only way you can stay on top of that is by recognizing, again, transitioning from to to with. You're not designing to your customers. You're designing with them. And so if you, you know, for a lot of companies are afraid to, to lift up the kimono and let consumers see what's going on until they release it. But fashion is a lot like IT in that it's always in beta, right? So we, yeah. what we want is we, we want consumers to be more involved earlier on in giving voice to what the trends are going to be. You know, it's, it's interesting. I mean, kind of another thing about fashion and, and, and really just kind of marketing in general is, uh, you know, yesterday was the Kobe Bryant accident. And... That really wasn't confirmed until mid-afternoon, mm-hmm. yet I think it was CBS had a polished Kobe Bryant documentary by 8 p.m. And you could just imagine, you know, the people who, who were responsible for putting that together, you know, this... And it couldn't just be some sloppy tribute, you know, it had to be magnificent, right? Just given the magnificence of, of the individual that they were honoring, but to be able to react that quickly and come out with something which, which wouldn't just be acceptable, but honorable in that case is amazing to think we live in a world where we can do that. And, and fashion is, is kind of like that, right? You need to be so quick to respond to the things that inspire you to get them out there and, and take advantage of it because, you know, in a flash, it's going to be gone as, as, as you've already talked about, but it's, it's really amazing. And, um, and something that if you're a CPG manufacturer, you know, you're not, and maybe this is one of the walls that you talk about, but you don't have the ability to be that agile and, and maybe you're going to need to be. Yeah, it, it's a great point. And, you know, I, we can kind of think of it as just in time marketing, you know, yeah. um, where, you, where you're making adjustments <clears throat> on the fly. And, and certainly, you know, that is a part of, of fashion. It's a part of advertising where you, you know, you see brands that are, let's say, tweeting during a big event like the Super Bowl and they're reacting to 
they're actually creating spots. Uh, you know, for example, when they lost power, I think it was yes. a year or two ago. Right. Uh, you know, they're able to react on the fly like that. Uh, you know, for the CPG people, well, yeah, you can't do it quite as quickly, but but you can react. And particularly when you look at how people are using your product in ways that you didn't plan, I, I think you can start to to come up with some sort of just-in-time promotions that celebrate that. It's kind of like, you know, recognizing if you sell Oreos that people love to you know, separate the two halves and lick each one separately. <laughs> so you do something with that, you know, I mean, there, there, you know, there's lots of little, little quirks like that. And people find ways to use the, these CPG products. And, and that's what resonates with people, especially when, when you can focus not so much on the institutional voice, but rather having authentic consumers be the ones to say, Hey, I just found a new way to eat Oreos. Check this out. You know, we have this cliched expression, think outside the box. Yeah. We all hate hearing that, right? Um, what I would say is don't, don't necessarily do that, but think between the boxes. In other words, in other words think about the categories that, that you use in your daily life. That, and we usually don't acknowledge them because they're just so blatant, you know. Right. It's kind of like a fish in water who doesn't understand that the water is keeping them alive, um, you know. Uh, but think about the ways that you, for example, the ways you divide up your market and you describe the competition and the labels that you use. And every vertical has them. You know, fashion has uh, has resort wear and swimwear and you know, evening wear, and every every industry has it. Um, and and challenge those. You know, just just challenge them. Think about the way that you know that you're segmenting your customers. What are the labels that you're using? And, and then challenge those labels and think about hybrids and, and talk. But overall, you know, the, the, best, the best advice I can give to managers that I, that I always give is get off your butt and actually go out into the field. Um, don't assume that you have this great intuition and you don't need to actually observe the product being used. You know, the... The Japanese have this great term of going to the Gemba, G-E-M-B-A, and, and, and what that means is uh, experiencing the phenomenon at the exact time when it happens. Huh. And there's lots of examples, I think, in, in insights and marketing research where, you know, you do get these, these tremendous uh, perspectives when you see what people are actually doing with your product. And it, it can be something as simple as, let's say, in the CPG category, uh, the, the realization that, you know, we, we buy boxes of cereal in, you know, we buy them in boxes for breakfast, but the reality is a lot of young mothers put them into little, into little plastic bags and they take them out during their day to, to feed their kids, you know, keep them quiet. So they're feeding them Cheerios one at a time out of the bag. So, right. you know, why not come up with little baby bags of Cheerios because that's how people are using them. I mean, it can be something as simple as that. Yeah. That's true. Um, that's that's actually that's a great example. So if you know, I, given your thirty books, given your academic papers, there's a lot that people, there's a lot more that people could know about the work that you've done, Michael. How can people learn more about the great work you're doing? What what's the best way for them to follow or to reach you? Well, I I appreciate that. Um, the best way is probably to hit my website, which is simply michaelsolomon.com. Okay. Um, or shoot me an email at michael at michaelsolomon.com. 
And uh, the website has some stuff that you can download. There's some there's a few things having to do with brand meaning and doing an audit of your brand and thinking about the meanings there and and some other things as well. That's terrific. Um, and, and of course, you're also active on the conference circuit, so people can keep an eye out for your name there as well. Yeah. Um, and, and furthermore, uh, you caught me in a generous mood. I, here's what, I, what I'd like to do is if, if anyone is interested in the book that you were so kindly asking me about, Marketers Tear Down These Walls, yeah. uh, if, you shoot, if they just shoot me an email, I will send them a free ebook. Oh, terrific. Yeah. Uh, Michael at michaelsolomon.com. I'll be happy to send them a free ebook and you know, I'd love to have their reactions to it or whatever, but uh, yeah, happy to do that. Oh, well, thank you for doing that, uh, Michael. I'm sure everyone's going to appreciate that. Um, yeah, and, and just a reminder, the book called Marketers Tear Down These Walls, Liberating the Postmodern Consumer. And then, of course, your, your latest book, Why Fashion, Fashion Brands Die and How to Save Them. Uh, curious, now that that one is published, um, is there another one in the works? <laughs> yeah, there is, there is actually, oh but uh, but give me a year or so. All right, be. all right. Well, then, <laughs> then we will talk again on that one. But uh, but certainly check out those books. Thank you for for that generous offer. Um, and 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 let's hope that that people act on it. So um so with that, Michael, thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule uh, to talk about your books and and just your thoughts and feelings on kind of the the state of the state today and and how we can all be better marketers and researchers. So. Uh, you've been very generous with your time, um, and, and we all appreciate it, certainly. Well, absolutely my pleasure, and, and I thank you for including me. Our, our, our pleasure and honor. All right, take care now. I hope you enjoyed today's episode, and I'd like to give a special thanks to Decision Breakers for making today's episode possible. We'll see you next time on Copper Dime.